They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? 
What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Let's pray before Mike comes to preach. Father, as we reflect on what we've just read, we pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts, showing us the wonder and the glory of the cross. We pray for Mike as he preaches. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him in opening up your word. And we pray that you'd encourage him and work through him as he speaks to us now. Amen. Thank you, readers. And thank you, Ali. And 
For those of you who are still with us, please keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 14 and we'll spend some time in this together. Easter is one of the best known aspects of Christianity. Uh, Many children will be looking forward to a chocolate egg quite soon. It's right up there with Christmas. Everyone knows about it. But what is it all about? Let me give you a three-word answer, a three-word summary, and then explain it. Easter is about life through death. Life through death. Just three little words, but I believe they sum up the message of Easter pretty well. And of course, if you think about it, there's something paradoxical about that statement. How on earth can life come through death? Now, the Christian faith has a number of paradoxes like this. And when you hear them, they're designed to make you stop in your tracks and think about them and think again. Here's just a few examples that I've taken from the Bible. Here's one. When I'm weak, then I am strong. How can weakness be strength? Second one, Jesus said, blessed, which means happy, profoundly happy, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Thirdly, another statement from Jesus, the greatest of all is the servant of all. He said to his followers, among you, the greatest of all should be the servant of all. And the fourth one, The only way to find yourself is by losing yourself. Paradoxes. These little sentences encapsulate profound truths and they should make us stop and think again. Jesus often taught like that. So here again, let me share that paradox that I believe is at the heart of Easter. Life through death. Now, as we go through these three sermons in Passion Week, last week we thought about the garden, today about the cross, And on Sunday, we're thinking about the tomb. We will see just how it is that Jesus Christ makes this paradox real and possible, that life can come through death. But I I would say we begin to see that in today's reading. But you must admit, it really doesn't look like life, does it? In our text today, we saw all these things done to the Lord Jesus. A dreadful miscarriage of justice. A painful betrayal from Peter, one of his closest associates and friends. The fickle betrayal of the crowds. A cynical decision by the man in power, Pilate, the Roman governor, condemning Jesus to death and releasing a known murderer. A heinous scene of soldiers barbarically treating their prisoner. And at the end of that, he was so battered he was too weak to carry his own crossbeam. They had to get someone else to do it. And then crucifixion and an agonising death. But we know from the Bible, and we learned this last week in the garden, the most severe aspect of all Jesus' suffering is actually none of these things, as terrible as they were, but his agonising experience of the judgment of God, the righteous anger of God being poured out on him at the cross as he drank the cup of God's judgment. And his words on the cross revealed that when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, how can all of this bring life? It looks like the most deathly scene imaginable. Now, there's way too much in this to cover in one sermon. I know that, and we only have half an hour together. But let me share three linked themes that I think run through all this narrative. These three I've, I've given, they've all got to begin with the, the letter S, should make it easier to remember. So these three th- themes are sin, 
suffering and substitution. Sin, suffering and substitution. Firstly, sin. What we see in this narrative is a terrible exposure of the human condition. And that means a terrible exposure of what the Bible calls sin. And when God came to earth, what we see here, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. This is how the human race treated its Lord and maker. And if we're prepared to be honest, as we look through four different groups of people in this narrative, I think we should see ourselves. Are you prepared for that? Here are four different aspects of sin exposed here. First of all, the Sanhedrin. In chapter 14, verse 53 to 65, the highest tribunal in the land, in the Jewish culture, meets. And yet, as a legal process, this is an absolute travesty of justice. It didn't match the standards of their own legal system. Jesus has no defence lawyer. That was a basic right. The witnesses against him tell stories again and again that don't match up. By verse 55, it says that they actually have no real evidence. The case ought to have been dismissed. But we all know that the authorities are actually manipulating events in order to condemn him. They've prejudged the outcome of this trial. So they rush it through and they make the decision in verse 64. And if you want to look at that, here it is. They say, uh, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. This is judicial language. It is the death sentence. Now, in the Sanhedrin, we see humanity's hatred of a God who would make absolute claims on them. A God who threatens our sovereignty over our own lives. We don't want God to be the Lord of all of us. We must get rid of him. And that's the first aspect of sin we see here, is a rejection of God's rightful rule over my life and your life. Secondly, we see Peter. Now, we would hope that this brave friend would stand by Jesus in his hour of need, wouldn't we? After all, back in chapter 14, verse 29, he vowed passionately that he would, would always stand by Jesus' side. He said, even if all fall away, I will not. And even at that point, Jesus knew that Peter was going to crumble in fear. And sure enough, he did. And there's an ironic comparison going on during this story that while Jesus is enduring a most intense abuse at the hands of the highest authorities in the country, Peter wilts under pressure from a young servant girl. So much for the big man. What we see in Peter is a person who believes, he has faith, but at the core he's seeking his own glory story. He's seeking his own glory story. Peter was very brave as long as he saw Jesus was powerful and doing miracles and seemed to be in control and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But Peter thought that the Messiah was going to be a glorious champion who would triumph through victory and crushing his enemies. Now when he sees Jesus weak and dishonoured and apparently failing, his courage drains away. You see, Peter at this point though he learns it later, at this point he doesn't understand the meaning of the gospel, that the way for Jesus to triumph is through defeat and death, life through death. Peter can't see it. He can't handle the weakness and the shame and the disgrace of Jesus. So as Jesus is being cursed, Peter is cursing himself. 
I don't know this man. He calls down curses. And as Jesus is being handed over to the guards, Peter is warming himself by the fire with some other guards. And then the rooster crows and Peter, all of a sudden, remembers the prediction that Jesus said, you will deny me before the rooster crows three times. And he breaks down and weeps bitterly. Are you starting to see yourself in these pictures? There's a third one. The crowds. The crowds. Their behaviour is absolutely bizarre. Just a few days before, they were cheering Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. They ran out into the fields. They pulled down palm branches. They waved them in the air for the conquering king who was riding in on a donkey. They spread their cloaks on the ground. Then they were hanging on his every word in the temple courts, delighting at his wise answers. But now look at them. Just look at this. In chapter 15, verse 11, the chief priests can turn them and they cry out for Barabbas to be released. It's an extraordinary turnaround. A known murderer, they ask to be freed instead of Jesus. They only have two words left for Jesus, crucify him. Now what we see in the crowds is the sinful tendency to a lack of conviction. These people go with the flow. They follow the majority opinion. They don't want to go against the grain or stand out with the tall poppy. They don't want people to dislike them. I wonder if you ever like this. Let me say, if you follow Jesus Christ and you identify with him, it will mean swimming against the tide in your culture. It will mean going against the grain. It will mean a certain amount of discomfort, and maybe persecution. Few people are willing to pay the price of their own reputation. It's another aspect of our sin. Fourthly, there are the soldiers. I mean, just, it looks the worst of all. They make sport of Jesus. This is the vile cruelty of a, a gang mentality. These, they have a vulnerable person in front of them and they incite each other to viciousness that they probably wouldn't normally do. In the cold light of day, it is unthinkable. But who can say that they've never joined in with bullying at some point on a pray, or preyed on a weak person with the crowd? Do you see yourself in any of these scenarios? Resisting the rule of God on your life? Turning in a fickle way with a lack of conviction? Having some faith but fundamentally thinking that it's all about you and victory? or joining in with bullying. These are aspects of sin. This is human nature being portrayed before us. This is us. We are no better than these people. We shouldn't kid ourselves. And the Bible teaches that our nature, the essence, the core of who we are, is not neutral, but it is corrupted by sin. We are pervasively corrupted by sin. At its worst, human nature is a snarling malice, hating God and resisting his claim on our lives. We detest his rule. And even at its best, Peter, when it comes to it, gets scared and sells out his dear Lord and friend because fear and self-protection take over when he doesn't grasp the gospel, that it's not all about him and that the way to victory 
is through weakness, dishonour and death. Some years later, the Apostle Paul was to sum all this up theologically in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 8, verse 7, he writes, The mind governed by the flesh, that's the sinful orientation, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We're hostile to God and our minds do not submit to God's law, nor can they. This is quite a verdict. The Bible is saying we don't have absolute free will, you and I. We're not a blank tablet. By nature, we are not neutral towards God. We are hostile. We are fundamentally self-centred and we believe the universe should revolve around us. Now, have you come to see your own wickedness? This is the first step to becoming a true Christian, is admitting that you are a sinner. One of the most eloquent statements of this that I've ever read is from the Church of England's General Confession. Here it is. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. There is no health in us. That's it. In a word, it's sin. We all stand convicted here. And the direct result of human sin, of our sin, is the second S. Jesus' suffering. We move from sin to suffering. These things were written down to teach us to meditate on. Mark records here even some tiny details because they all tell us something about Jesus. Think about some of the things that are being showed to us here. The miscarriage of justice, being deprived of justice by the highest court in the land, knowing that the most powerful people are out to destroy him. That's where it begins. Then there's mockery, being spat upon, blindfolded and punched, a crown of thorns rammed onto his head, being scorned for the very beautiful things that he came to do. Prophesy, they say mockingly. That's what he did. He taught. Save, they say, chapter 15, verse 30. That's what he was doing. Rule, 15, verse 18. These are the very things that Jesus came to do. And he's being mocked and rejected for them. And there's violence. Jesus was beaten by groups of men. He was battered on the head with a staff until he was too weak to carry his cross. He was then crucified. That involved being stripped naked and nailed to a cross with six inch nails through his wrists and feet. And then that wooden pole was dropped into the ground, into a hole where it would stand upright. And we're told that the shock of it alone could dislocate a person's joints. And there he would hang publicly naked and exposed until dead. And sometimes it would take days. But that was not the worst of it. The culmination of Jesus' suffering comes in what some have said is the most awful question ever asked. Verse 34, Jesus cried out, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else had forsaken him and he knew that full well. But here he asks, why have you forsaken me? God. And how this shows his abandonment. Until this point, Jesus has been referring to God as Father. Or as we thought last week with the intimate word, the Aramaic word Abba. But here there's some distance. The eternal Son of God, who had lived in happy communion of love with God the Father and the Holy Spirit throughout all eternity, was now utterly forsaken. The prophet Isaiah had written about this moment some eight centuries earlier. In Isaiah 53.10, he said, It was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. And here we get just a glimpse of the depth of that suffering. Jesus here is going through hell on earth. Yet even at this moment, we see his perfect obedience. Even in the moment of complete isolation, enduring the wrath of God on sin, he doesn't scream at God, he doesn't curse God, he uses the language of a believer. My God, my God. That was how he suffered when he was truly abandoned. And the Bible teaches that through this, through this cross, and underneath it all is the deep, deep wisdom of God. That God was achieving a rescue for countless people through this cross. That Jesus' suffering actually means the salvation of the world, the redemption of all things. So what does this mean for your suffering, my friend? How do you know that your suffering right now isn't accomplishing something glorious in the deep purposes of God. Those who saw Jesus on the cross mocked him. They assumed that he'd failed and that God had left him. On one level, they were right. God had forsaken him. But on another level, God was achieving something so amazing that it would change the course of the universe. So is it time for us to stop thinking that we have all the answers about our own suffering we don't. We're just proud to think that. And is it time for us to stop thinking that we have the right to be furious with God? Which is ridiculous. If you think about it, God doesn't owe you anything. And is it time for us to learn to accept what comes from the hand of a good father by sitting at the foot of Jesus' cross and thinking about his crucifixion, his suffering? for us. Jesus' suffering shows us how all our suffering is redeemed in the wisdom and timing and power of God. Now the cross has shown us that. We're so far we've seen our sin, the ugliness of it, the pervasiveness of it and we're all corrupted and affected by it. We've seen Jesus' suffering but thirdly there is another level deeper still in the cross of Jesus Christ and it is that here he is a substitute. He is standing in for other people. He is taking their punishment. In my place, condemned he stood. Substitution. Now you might say, where do we see that in Mark's account? Where is this idea of substitution? Is that just being imported 
from another part of the Bible. And actually we see it in a very unlikely place and it is in the story of Barabbas. This itself is a portrait of the good news, a portrait of the gospel. Have a look at uh, chapter 15 verse 6 and following. It says here, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. He wants to get out of it here. He knows that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Now, why do I say this is a portrait of the gospel? Because here is Barabbas in prison, an enemy of the state, a violent rebel, a murderer. And he deserves the punishment that he's going to get. But he gets freedom. Whereas Jesus deserves freedom, but takes punishment. Do you see? Did Jesus on this day set a captive free by his death? Literally, he does. And his name is Barabbas. Jesus took his place. A guilty man walked free. They brought Barabbas out of his cell and gave him his clothes. He was probably stunned. He didn't know what was going on. They said, son, you are free to go. And he walked out and breathed the clean air, a free man. And as Jesus hung and suffered on a cross, Barabbas walked free. He'd been granted a free pardon, a new lease of life, a pardon that only a king could give. If you want to see the heart of Christianity, look at Barabbas walking free while Jesus Christ breathed his last. He took his place. He was a substitute. You see, Christians, contrary to, to some popular myths, Christians are not people that, who think they're better than anyone else. Far from it. We don't think that we're righteous or that we're morally good. No, we have people who have learned to say, at my heart, I'm a sinner too. Actually, at my heart, I'm just like Barabbas. I'm guilty, maybe not of murder, but I'm guilty nonetheless. I'm guilty of thousands and thousands of sins. I'm deserving of the punishment that a holy God would see fit. I confess that. And Jesus Christ took my place so that I could walk free. He was our, our substitute on the cross. So although he didn't know it, Barabbas actually was the first of many that day. He's a picture for the rest of us because we know who is ultimately responsible for Jesus' death. We know that the Jewish leadership and the Gentile establishment and the soldiers were all involved but we know Christians know that they're not the ones that those are not the ones ultimately responsible we know that we are we're the reason Jesus was on the cross many years ago probably about 100 years ago um, English novelist and writer G.K. Chesterton is famously reported although I'm not sure that the evidence has been found but he's famously reported 
to have responded to an article, a question that was being asked by the editors of the Times newspaper. And the question was this, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton famously wrote in, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? I am. That's what Christians have learned to believe. We're the ones who put Jesus on the cross. It had to happen. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. There was no other way. There's an old hymn, beautiful old hymn. Let me just read you a couple of verses. Perhaps you know it. There is a green hill far away without a city wall where our dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Jesus' death on the cross was a substitution. His death gives us life. Let me tell you a true story. Two young Chinese brothers lived in San Francisco in the early 1900s. They looked very alike. The older brother was a hard-working and responsible man, but the younger one was rebellious, addictive and on the wrong side of the law. The younger brother got into gambling and one night he had a fight over a card game and he accidentally killed a man. He ran away. He ran to his home. He stripped off his bloody clothes and put on new ones. He tried to hide them. He then left town. But too many people had identified him. The older brother saw all of this and he knew what was going to happen. The police were going to come looking and they would search and find his brother and his brother would eventually be caught and executed. So the older brother went home and he found the bloodstained clothes and he put them on. And when the police came, they arrested him. He was tried. Now he was a bit older, but he was similar in height and size and looks and so on, being the brother. And he looked just like him. So he was tried, found guilty and executed for the crime. Sometime later, the younger brother returned to town. He learned what had happened. He was shaken to the core. He was full of remorse. And so he went to the police and confessed. But do you know what they said to him? We can't execute two people for the same crime. You are free to go. The penalty has been paid. Your brother was a substitute. That's what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. Our sin, his sufferings and our substitute. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean for us at the heart level? There are at least two very profound implications of this new life that we get through his death. Firstly is the end of guilt. The end of guilt. For all of those who trust in Jesus Christ's grace alone, his blood shed for their sins, they receive his full and free pardon. They receive the forgiveness of Almighty God and their sins are taken away and cleared. Guilt is no more. So whatever you have done, Jesus Christ has paid for it. Have you ever come to Jesus 
and simply asked him on your knees to forgive you? Have you ever reached that point of acknowledging your sin and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Let me just say, his arms are outstretched to you today. You can do it today. Today is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. The end of guilt, but you know there's even more. There's the end of shame. The end of shame. Well, what's the difference between guilt and shame? I was never that clear on it until I read a book. I wonder if I, can I hold this up and will, it, will people be able to see it? And a wonderful book that's uh, Reflections on Life and Ministry and Depression by an Anglican writer and minister called Mark Maynell. He talks about shame. And he talks about the difference between guilt and shame like this. Guilt says, I've done something bad. But shame says, I am bad. I'm bad. I'm ashamed of myself, of who I am. So for the shamed person, it's not enough just to be forgiven. That will only offer them a partial respite. The only hope is for the supposedly unlovable person to find acceptance and welcome to bask in the reassurance of knowing that they are loved and accepted. Anything less, says Mark, is profoundly threatening. Let me just read a, a quote from this book. And he quotes a, another pastor called Timothy Keller. He says this, Only God can truly heal the wounds of shame. Other people can only go so far. This joy is everlasting, substantial and renewing. And here are some words of Timothy Keller that capture the shock of it all. To be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. To be fully known and fully loved is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. It fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Christian friend, the cross means the end of guilt and the end of shame. And some of you have got to believe that today and receive that new life through his death that internal change that comes from knowing in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, you are loved and accepted because of Jesus Christ. This really is life, isn't it? Through his death. And that's what we must learn from seeing the cross. Jesus asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now I think we know the answer. God forsook him. For us. For us. He did it all for love's sake. Not because of your goodness. You have none. Not because of your gifts. He gave them to you in the first place. But because he chose to love you unconditionally. So what then is a fitting response to this suffering and substitution of our Lord Jesus? The response, I think, is to give him the highest honour in our hearts and in our lives. There's another interesting cameo in this story. It's a man who actually was overseeing the crucifixion. He was a tough Roman centurion. He was in charge of a company of men. He was there to make sure that Jesus died. And he watched. 
as a professional execution guy. He looks and he is the one who says these words in chapter 15, verse 39. Surely this man was the son of God. Of all people, the first human being in the gospel to understand who Jesus is, is an untrained, rough Roman centurion. A pagan Gentile. His theology is totally messed up. He doesn't, he's probably an idol worshipper. He doesn't know much, but he does see Jesus. And he knows when he sees him on the cross and how he died. Surely this man was the son of God. The king who came to save us on the king's cross. So what about you? Are you a person who knows you've never really trusted Jesus Christ? You've really been relying on your own moral goodness, your own efforts. You're trying to cover yourself with those things. Are you still trying to impress God with your own goodness? Come on. How could that be possible? Look at the cross. Look at the suffering of Jesus. If there was any way for us to earn acceptance from a holy God ourselves, Jesus would not have had to go there. He would not have had to go through it. To see the cross and then insist on our own goodness is insulting. So now today, let me invite you to bow to Jesus Christ as the Lord of all and the Lord of all of you. To admit your sin and moral weakness, to believe and trust that he died for you and to come to him right now, asking him to give you forgiveness and new birth and to take away your guilt and shame. I'm going to pray to conclude this sermon, then Ali's going to come and bring some other prayers. And the prayer I'm going to pray actually is one that people have used who are coming to God in faith and asking them, asking to become a Christian or asking to be forgiven. So if you want, uh, listen along and if you want, pray along with me as I pray this prayer. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. I've done many things that don't please you. I've lived my life for myself only. I am sorry and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me to save me. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you to take control of my life. I give it to you. From this day forward, help me to live every day for you and in a way that pleases you. I love you, Lord, and I thank you that I will spend all eternity with you. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you want to follow up, if you simply have questions, remember to drop us a line, ask at gracechurchmanchester.net.